No. Okay, here we go. We are going to start tonight in John 21. So if you take your Bibles and turn to John 21, before we go to 1 Thessalonians. John 21 and verse 15, uh, if you remember at the beginning of this chapter, um, Peter says, uh, I'm going fishing. And that's not like my dad who would grab his reel and throw his stuff in the back of the truck and tell my mom, I'm going fishing, which meant he was going to go up below the dam or go over to one of the lakes and fish. This would be like my dad saying, I'm going to quit everything else I'm doing and I'm going back to fishing. I'm going to make that my career. And that's what Peter was talking about. In other words, Peter, even though the Lord is risen and he's seen the Lord, Peter's given up on um, really being part of anything that the Lord Jesus Christ might be doing because he figures there's no way at this juncture that the Lord really wants anything to do with him. Uh, even though, interestingly enough, uh, after Mary Magdalene, and after those, the, the women that Jesus appears to, the first person, apparently, that Jesus appeared to of his disciples was Peter, and he pe appeared to him personally. Uh, so with that, um, we have this fishing incident where Jesus shows up on the beach while these guys are out fishing, and it's coming towards morning, and uh, Jesus has got a breakfast ready for them on the beach, which to me is very interesting that he's doing this. And so the disciples come in and it says, so when, verse 15, sorry, John 21, verse 15, so when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And by these, he means more than these things. He's not saying more than the rest of these disciples. He's not saying, do you love me more than the rest of these guys here do? It's not what he's saying. Do you love me more than these things? And he says to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he changes now. Now, I wanna, I'm going to pull something up here, and hopefully nobody gets on, but I want to share my screen for a minute. And you may or may not be able to see this on yours. But when he asks him, do you love me? This, this word right here, love, is the word uh, agape, or agapao is the verb. Do you love me more than these? And he says, yes, Lord, you know that I love. And if you can see below there, you can see the word below this word, which is agapas in this case, uh, is different than the word philo, philo uh, that we have um, below here, uh, which is the word, the verb phileo. And so he says, feed my, my lambs. Then again, verse 21. And he says to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And again, he uses the word Agapao. And he said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I, and he uses phileo again, but in this case, philo, uh, because of the form it's being used. And he said to him, uh, Shepherd, this word says 10, but shepherd my, my sheep. And he says to him then a third time, Simon, son of John, do you, now notice this, this is the third time, and he says, Do you love me? And he uses the verb phileo, philis in this case. And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to, and he said to him, Lord, you know everything. 
are all things. You know that I, again, phileo you. And Jesus said to him, feed then my sheep. And he uses different words in here for tending lambs, uh, shepherding uh, the sheep, and feeding sheep. But the significant point that, I, that we're trying to bring out is, is that in these verses, three times Jesus asks Peter about love. And he uses in the first two, do you agapao me? Do you agapas me? And Peter responds with the verb phileo. The third time, Jesus now asks him, do you phileo me? And this grieves Peter. Now, we, we may not appreciate what he's saying here unless we, unless we remind ourselves that the words agapao love and phileo love both have different significance. Uh, even in the Greek speaking, what this is what happened. I remember before we moved out here, I remember going and reading an article on these two words for love, and the scholars that wrote this article actually used this very passage to try to say, see, these words are the same. They're the same. They mean the same thing. There's no difference. And they actually used this passage saying, see, Peter, when Peter said phileo, he thought he was saying exactly the same Jesus was saying with agapao. And so the issue the third time in verse 17 is not that Jesus changes to, to phileo, it's that Jesus asked him three times. But that's not the significance. The fact is, is that the Greeks, the, Greek, the people that spoke Greek, they knew that there was a distinction between phileo and agapao. Agapao was, uh, was a word you used for love for somebody that was a very dear friend, somebody that was very important to you. Okay, so stop that and go back to this. So it was for somebody that was very dear to you. That's when you used agapao. Phileo was somebody that could be dear to you, but it wasn't of the same quality, wasn't of the same nature as, as agapao was. And it's when, and so as Jesus is asking Peter, do you love me? Peter is saying, and, he, and I think love is okay, but I think even just to, for clarity, we can say, Peter says, you know that I'm fond of you. I'm very fond of you. But when Jesus actually brings it down and says, are you fond of me, Peter? That's what grieves Peter, because he feels like the Lord is even questioning whether he's fond of him. It's not, it's not that he's asked him three times, and I'm not saying the three, three questions that it three times might not have been a problem to him. But I think the bigger significance is, is Peter's grieved that the Lord, that he feels like the Lord's even questioning his phileo. And really what the Lord's trying to do, if you don't appreciate these three questions, is the Lord is extending to Peter grace. The dispensation of grace hasn't started yet, but he's showing Peter, even at this point, I know you. I know that you have denied me, but he never talks about the denial. He never comes and says, "Peter, you denied me. What are you going to do about it? You got to make things right, Peter." See, that would be a law thing. You messed up, Peter. Now you got to make it right. What are you going to do to make it right? That would be law. But under grace, he just says, "Do you love me?" Peter says, "Well, I'm fond of you," and the Lord says, "Okay, then take care of my my lambs," and asks him again, Peter, are, do you love me? And Peter says, I'm fond. He says, well, then shepherd my sheep. And then again, the last time, are you fond of me, Peter? Just trying to drive this point home. 
Peter. I'm okay if all if all you can if all you can muster at this point. Remember, Peter doesn't have fruit from the Spirit love yet because the Spirit hasn't been given. So nobody can have fruit from the Spirit quality of love. People did have agape love before the law or before the Spirit gave started giving agape love. They had a they had a it was different than the kind of agape love that the Holy Spirit gives us. But they would have called what they had agape love. Okay. Uh, we say agape, we're using the noun that way. Now with that, then I want us to go back over, or want us to go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And I think that this is important for us to, to get at the outset as an illustration of the fact that we're going to have both of these words being used in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Last week we were looking about the issue of, of acquiring a spouse. And, and Paul was talking about the proper way to acquire a spouse versus the way, uh, as we saw last week, a pagan might go about acquiring a spouse. And uh, so he says, um, so he's he's uh, telling these people at this point that uh, <clears throat> this is, you know how to acquire a spouse. This is what we, he was talking about. And he goes over and reminds them of this. But now he says in verse 9, and now as to brotherly love, and he uses not the word phileo or phileo, but he uses philadelphias, where he's combining the word phileo or phileo with um, the noun adelphos, brother. And so he says it's a brotherly fondness. Now, to me, he could have just used phileo, but I think by using the noun philadelphias, he's able to say this fondness that you have, not just in general out there for people, but the fondness that you have for your brothers, your brothers in Christ. This is what, this is what he is concerned about uh, in this context and what he's looking for. <coughs> Excuse me. And he says, you don't have a need that I should write to you or that anyone for that matter should write to you about this. For you are, and we have this this very interesting. Um, it's a it's a, um, a shall we say an adjective or a noun that says God taught ones. I mean, we'd say God taught ones, but it's actually a noun or an adjective, and it all it takes all those words to explain that he takes a form of the word taught, combines it with the word God, but it's a noun, not a verb. You are God taught ones to love one another. This is the statement that we have by Jesus in John chapter 13, verse 34, when he says to love one another, alelas, like I have loved you. And he says, you're God taught to do this. Now, what does he mean when he says you're God taught? Well, I would say it started with John 13, because who was telling them to love like he loved? God in flesh, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he was expressing the kind of love that they should have by his example prior to his command. His example, remember, was to take off his nice outer garment, put a towel around himself, and wash feet, showing how do you love? You love by serving. You love by serving, which, by the way, as an encouragement, Serve one another. Serve one another and serve them in love. This is what you ought to be doing as believers. Secondly, 
when believers want to help you and serve, let them do that. Because otherwise, you can oftentimes be depriving other believers of exercising love towards you. So it's, it's two ways. You need to be serving, but you also need to let other believers serve you. And uh, if you're like a lot of Christians, Dwight's made this comment. He says, my parents taught me well. You help anybody that needs help. You drop everything there's, that's going on and you go help them. But you don't ever dare ask for help yourself. <laughs> and Dwight says, that's a hard thing to unlearn. To learn to be able to ask for help or let other people help. So he says, you are God-taught ones to love one another. But I want you to look over in Ephesians chapter 5 and the first verse. Ephesians 5 and verse 1. Ephesians 5, verse 1, Paul says, Therefore you become mimics of God as beloved children. Now what do you think he's telling them to be mimicking? God's love for them. As beloved children. See, God treats them as beloved children. And as beloved children, that means they're the object of God's love, and he says, that's what you should be mimicking. You should be mimicking that kind of character that God exhibits by having that kind of love for, we would presume, that kind of love for others. Okay? We should be having that kind of love for others. Everybody follow? I hope you're following this. Uh, as beloved children... And walk in love, notice this, even as Christ loved us. So we've got a double whammy on love here. We've got the love for the Father that makes you a child. You're a child of God. We should back up. You're a child of God because God the Father literally indwells you. His seed is in you, and that constitutes you as his child. You are more than just an outsider that's been adopted into his family and given his name. You literally have been born in the realm of your spirit from God the Father. And that was part of his act of love for you. But then he says, and walk in love even as Christ loved us and gave or gave, handed, gave himself over, or shall we might say just for clarity, dedicated himself for us. And excuse me, an offering and a sacrifice to God that has a sweet aroma. Now, to me, this is interesting because twice Paul says this once in Philippians 4, and he says this here of Christ in, in uh, 5 2. That with the Philippians, he says, when you give a gift, a material gift to help other believers that have a need, you give it with the right attitude. Paul says, that's a good smelling aroma to God. I, I don't know if you guys have this experience, but Peggy and I, once in a while, when we're out for a walk, if you're out for a walk late in the day and we have a tendency to eat supper late, and so sometimes we're still out walking and we're headed home at six, and you walk by, by houses and we stop and go, I don't know what they're cooking, but I want to eat that. I want to go up there and knock on their door and ask, can I have some of what you're fixing? Because it smells good. It's a good aroma. You can smell people barbecuing meat. Uh, whatever it might be, and you can smell that aroma. Well, that's what, and this was something, think, think about it. In their culture where the Greeks and Romans offered sacrifices to their gods and the Jews had offered sacrifices at the temple, they all had an experience with what it smelled to be up there to smell meat 
cooking, burning on these altars. So it was a thing I think that they could probably relate to. But Paul says, writing the Philippians, that's what that material gift is. Now, if you put this together, that material gift, I, I made the comment, if it's given with the right motive. So this is one of the things where I don't like about, we should, I should have you all unmuted here at this moment with Zoom, because I should be asking you, what would then the right motive for giving to others' needs be? It should be, hope you're all saying it, love. You ought to be saying, you're giving it out of love. You care so much for those other people that you're willing to take what some of what you have to provide for their need that they may have and to use it in that way. And that would be a proper kind of love. And that would smell good. Likewise, he says, Jesus Christ, when he gave himself, that also was like an offering that, that was offered up. And that also was a sweet aroma. That was pleasing. That was pleasing uh, in this way. And so we have this twofold example of love, the Father's love that makes us beloved children, and the sacrifice that Christ offering himself in this way, turning himself over, also smells good. And so we have this act of love uh, that Christ did. And if you go on, go on down in the, in the context, we also have another example of Christ's love where he has given himself in the sense that he's dedicated right now to the church becoming everything that he's planned for it to be. And he's dedicated to seeing that the church reaches that, that goal to help uh, achieve that. And so when Paul makes this statement here, and we can go back over there to um, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, he says that you are God-taught ones to love one another, he says, you don't need me to teach you this. I think probably one of the early things all these Christians learned was, hey, that God the Father sent the Son down here in love the Father sent the Son. And that was an example of love uh, that they probably learned about very early on uh, in their Christian life. I know we do that when we evangelize today. We, a lot of people run to John 3.16 and try to use that. Interestingly enough, when you read in the book of Acts, and you read about the evangelism, nobody ever quotes John 3.16. And no, which, well, it wasn't written for one thing. But no one ever refers to God loving people in providing salvation. Doesn't describe it in, the, in those terms. Okay, It could, but it doesn't. Uh, interestingly enough, not to get sidetracked, but it's over in, actually in Romans chapter 2 and verse 4 that it's, it doesn't say it's his love, but it says it's his kindness that actually causes a person to turn to repentance or to change their mind. It's when they realize that God, rather than getting in their face, grabbing their collars and saying, you wicked sinner, what are you going to do? It's rather, it's a God says, look at this. Just believe in my son. you know. And it's kind, immensely kind that God would do that. And uh, that's, he says, that's what actually causes a person to, to change their mind when they realize that kindness of God. So, he says, you were God-taught love to love one another. Interestingly enough, now, at the first part of verse 9, we have Philadelphia, as we already talked about. But in the last half of the verse, at the end, to love one another, he switches to agape. Which, the fact that he puts both of these in here, and he assumes that one relates to the other, it doesn't mean that the two are, are, are the same, that they're indistinct, 
that they're the, exactly talking about the same thing. It's rather that the two of them, from Paul's perspective, go together. It's fitting, if you're going to exercise agape love towards a person, that you should also be very fond of them. It's fitting that you should do that. Most of the time, this is the way it's going to be. Now, just as, a, as an aside, Hebrews 12 does tell us that whom the Lord loves, agape, he disciplines. And probably, in, and so then he talks about the human realm, Probably in the human realm, even if a parent is exercising discipline on a child out of love, there's a good chance that that parent, because they're disciplining a naughty child, probably they're not very fond of that child at that moment. So there might be some situations in which agape might not necessarily go hand in hand with Philadelphia. But I think what from what Paul's getting we would like to presume most of the time when we exercise agape love, it's not that we're having to deal with somebody that's difficult, that we're dealing with somebody that needs to, to be uh, put in place. It's rather that we are trying to do things just to be very helpful and, and uh, kind uh, to other believers. And so we exercise agape love and we exercise a fondness. So it's not just, yeah, you're in the family, so I love you. It's like, and I like you, you're my friend. You know, so I look at the people here in our church, and no offense to my parents and my sister that are on here, but you're, and I, they wouldn't take it that way, but you're all family. You are all family. And and this is, I guess this would be the part where I would say, no offense to them, but you are, to be very honest, you are as dear to me as my parents and my sister are, because you're all brothers and sisters in Christ. And we, and I really God really, that's one of the things that God's been really, let's put it this way. When Peg and I first moved out here, for years, for many years, it was so hard to be here so far away from our family until God really helped us to appreciate what the family of God really is and to say, this is family. This is family right here. Uh and that doesn't mean that you're neglectful of your of your blood family, especially if your blood family are part of the family of God. But I think it's important for us to, to grasp this idea of what it means to have agape love towards one another and at the same time have a brotherly fondness to see others as your brothers in Christ. Or we could say brothers and sisters in their modern context, although Scripture just usually says brothers. And then he goes on in verse 10. For, um, verse 10, for indeed you do, or you are doing this toward all the brothers who are in Macedonia. So Thessalonica, remember, Thessalonica was uh, um, just after Philippi up there in Macedonia. Philippi was the first chief city of, of Macedonia. And then Paul went from there and eventually stopped and did ministry in Thessalonica. And so they were showing love to the believers in their area. And that, by the way, is, I think, something very important for us to understand what he's saying here uh, in this context. A lot of believers, the minute they understand something about needing, meeting needs of other believers, they immediately try, want to try to go national or global or something like this. We have to figure out how to turn this into a movement. Uh, instead of just doing what's simple. And 
I, I just listened to a guy yesterday that that teaches Greek, um, and he was he was uh, being interviewed, and he said at the church that he was, he just started teaching a Monday night Greek class, and he said he had you know twelve people that started, but after a couple of weeks, pretty much everybody had dropped out except for six. And there were six people that stayed in that Greek class and finished it all the way to the end. And they did, and those people were doing really well. But he says the leaders of the church said, Oh, you know what? This is great. We need to start a Bible institute and we need to figure out somebody to run the Bible institute. He says, Why can't it just be what it is? Why can't, why do we have to have an organized plan that we have to do all this? Why can't we just say, Hey, we're just going to have this class? You guys want to show up? Show up for this class. Why do we have to have this formal organization all the time? And I use this that these people, they, they weren't formally organizing activities and saying, this is the Macedonian initiative. This is, we're going we're gonna to love all the believers of Macedonia. They just were doing it. Why? Because those were the believers that they were close to. They were in their area. It was easy to do. And that's a challenge for each of us. Then instead of us thinking that we have to change Royal City, or we have to change Grant County, or we have to change the state of Washington, or the United States, or something else. We And as believers, we get very distracted with that nonsense. You know the only person you have to love is the person God puts in front of you to love. You don't have to be spending all your time worrying about, well, I've only got this one person to love. Can't I be finding, can't I be finding other people to love out there? And so I'm worried... Um, so I'm worried because I, I need to have all these others. Um, yes. Oh, and I think this is Garnix over there. It says they were loving them and fond of them. Yes. And so that's what he's saying. They were doing this. In other words, they weren't starting an initiative. And so I'm just trying to encourage us very simply when it comes to exercising love, you know how to do it? You love the people God brings across your path or the people you know that God will bring across your path. In a given week, you know, most of you, that you're going to encounter people that are part of our assembly. And so you think, I think you ought to give some forethought to how, what are some ways that I can love these people when God brings them across my path? And then always be prepared for the fact that that might have to change because what you prepare to do to love them may not be what's needed when you actually meet them. They might have another need. You think you're, as a pastor teacher, I might, there's been times I've gone to somebody thinking, that I'm going to actually have to teach them something. And I go there and I find out they need someone to just sit and listen to them for a while and then someone to help them with something. And they don't need me to sit and do a 45 minute or it's 45 minutes. Haha. They don't need me to do a, a Bible study uh, with them. You just need to be prepared to, to love those believers. And there are other believers outside of our church in this area uh, that you that God brings across your path, and you need to be prepared to love them. Uh, Edward Key works with some people that are believers. Some of them attend our church. Some of them don't attend our church. But as God brings those people across his path as a believer, he may have opportunities to direct love to those individuals in that, in that way. Uh, and... Uh, we continue going on. I know a number of you are in that same type of situation. And so Paul says here, for you do or are doing this to all the brothers in the whole of Macedonia. So they really were doing this. They were exercising love. And Paul didn't feel like, uh, just as, we're, as I'm trying to just clarify here, Paul didn't feel like they needed to 
then make a plan to turn this into a global initiative or regional initiative or something. They just were doing this. But then what he says, but we encourage you, brothers, to abound more. That is, keep doing it. Don't go, oh, we're good. We've loved these people right here. This is good. It's just like, you know what? Keep your eyes open. If if you're loving those people right now, well, keep your eyes open because maybe there's going to be a different way that God's going to have for you to love. Uh, and maybe he's going to bring some other people and you're going to go, well, I'm already loving these people here. And God says, yeah, but now I brought this person across your path. Can you add them to the objects of your love? I, I think all of us get this, what he's getting at. But again, it's it's like I was trying to say, and I, I don't want, I'm probably belaboring this point more than we need to, but it's just sometimes as Christians, we become very obsessed with taking just very simple acts of service, acts of love we do for other people, and all of a sudden we've got to turn it into this program, and we've got to give it a title, and we've got to say, this is who we are, rather than just saying, just love people, just meet needs as God brings them across your path. But he says, but abound even more. In other words, keep on loving. You're doing it. He's not saying you aren't doing it, but he says, keep on uh Keep on loving. Go on and love more. Uh, change my thing back. And then as he's talking about this, what there's encouraging him and uh, loving more, and he gives, he has a five infinitive verbs. Okay, You don't have to know what an infinitive verb is, but he uses five verbs, five action words, for those of you that don't remember grammar school, that are going to express what he wants. And the first one we've already touched on, we encourage you, brothers, abound more. Second of all, in verse 11, he puts two of them together. Make it your ambition to be quiet. Now, by quiet, he doesn't mean that you just sit around and, Tim, do you have an opinion? Or, Tim, do you have an opinion? Would you like to share it with us? <laughs> it's not what he, I don't know. You guys can watch me. I'm shaking. I'm nodding my head and shaking because I'm being quiet. That's not, this word literally has the idea of being able to be settled here to actually being able to have a, a quiet peaceableness. As an example, last week in our nation, in Michigan, thousands of people traveled into um, uh, Lansing, Michigan, where the cap state capital is. Olympia this weekend. Oh. Stood in front, Emily, oh. stood in front I, I did see that. I did see that. And they were very boisterous. And that's the opposite of this word. They're yelling and they're shouting. And interestingly enough, you know when Paul writes first let, let's go over to First Timothy for a minute. For, turn to First Timothy two. First Timothy two. First Timothy two verse one. Paul says, Therefore I encourage first of all that should be made supplications, then worships, then intercessions, and then giving of thanks on behalf of all men, on behalf of kings, on behalf of those that are that are a superior in authority, uh, those that are leading, in order or uh, or being being over you, in order then that you might lead a quiet. This is this word, a non boisterous life in all godliness and seriousness. And that seriousness literally means the idea of rising above. Not, there's a dog fight and you don't go down there and start grabbing the dogs and getting wrapped up in the dog fight. 
Okay, um, you don't, you, it, and that's hard not to do. But what was it? Two years ago, Peggy's niece. That happened with their dog. The neighbor's dogs actually broke through the fence between the places, got into their yard, attacked her dog. She went out there to try to save her dog, and one of the other dogs that was a pit bull grabbed her niece and bit her in the throat, and the doctor at the emergency room said, that much more, and she'd be dead because it would have cut her jugular. What she did was she jumped into a dog fight. She tried to get in between, and I, I know, I, I get that. You know, it's her dog. I'm not trying to say... That that's, it would have been an easy decision. But that's a good example of this idea of rising above, is that you don't get drawn into this. And you and I as believers, we are not citizens of this earth. We are citizens of heavens. And as a result of that, we ought to be able to rise above the fairs and stuff that are going on. And we don't have to be these people that are yelling at Olympia or yelling at at Washington, D.C. or anything else, crying out, going, we want this and we want that. When we're doing that, we are out of the will of God because we're not doing the very thing Paul says here we ought to be doing. Because he says we ought to be leading a peaceful life by talking to God about it, not by going over there and standing outside Olympia and shouting at them, using that because it's a current situation. If you go back over there to Ephesians or to 1 Thessalonians, Paul says, likewise, you ought to make it your ambition to be those who are quiet. And by quiet, he says, we're not loud and boisterous. We're not out there yelling and objecting to everything all the time. And we're the loud mouths. And sadly, sometimes, I have to say, Christians, especially good fundamental Christians that really believe what the Bible says, we're some of the worst ones at yelling at the world and at the government all the time. And we don't obey what God very plainly told us to do, is don't be like that. Make it our ambition to be those who are quiet. And how? You say, how do I do that? I don't like what I see around me. Take it to God. That's exactly what Paul's saying over in 1 Timothy 2. Talk to, you've got the ear of the God of the universe. Why don't we take that seriously? Why do we think that my words yelling and objecting and signing petitions and I don't know whatever else other things that we might do, why do we think that's going to change the world? Rather than taking and talking to our great God. So he says, make it your ambition to be quiet. To be able to be those people that don't have to yell and be boisterous in these things. And you know what? If you think I'm pointing my finger at you on any of those things, well, then maybe that's an issue that you have. But you also need to know, I'm pointing the finger at me because my wife over here will tell you she gets an earful from me every once in a while, and I sometimes have to turn and apologize to her and say I'm sorry because we have better things above. And why am I getting so focused on all the things down here all the time? Then he goes on, and he says, not only that we ought to be quiet, but we ought to then practice our own things. Now, elsewhere, both Peter and Paul use the expression, the opposite expression here of being a busybody. And a busybody is a person that's working on everybody else's things. And this term is saying, you need to attend to your own things. I've got enough of my own things without having to bother with attending to your things. 
Now, as believers, we can be encouraging other believers with regard to the truths of the Word of God. But, as believers, we don't come to other believers and say, I've got good investment advice for you. As one believer to another. That's not what, that's not what Scripture tells us. In fact, we saw that, I believe, on Sunday where Paul says, guess what? Those who are rich in the world... They ought to be rich in good works. That's his that's his investment advice. Be rich in good works. Not, you ought to think about investing in gold. I remember when we first, I was just talking to, I don't remember who it was. I was talking to somebody at church just a couple weeks ago about uh, a believer, I remember, in our church. That's not, they haven't been here for many years now, but took me to his basement and opened up one of his big safes that he had down there and was showing me all the gold coins and big gold things like this that he, um, like, I don't know what you call them, ingots or whatever. And he had those and loads of silver in there because he says, this is what you got to do to prepare for the for the coming future <coughs> economic crisis. Well, you know, that may be, but that's not the kind of encouragement that we issue to other believers. The kind of encouragement we issue to them is talk to God. Set your mind and seek things above and set your mind on things above. I've been thinking a lot just in the last two days about Paul's statement over, and I believe it's in, and I might be wrong, but it's in either 2 Corinthians, first verses of 2 Corinthians 10 or first verses of 2 Corinthians 11, where Paul says he was worried about them moving away from the simplicity that is in Christ. And I was, Peggy and I were talking about this last night, I believe it was, that about the fact that just think of how many things from Paul's point of view are addressed by remembering who you are in Christ. <laughs> it keeps coming back to who are you in Christ? Who are you in Christ? Who are you in Christ? And when Paul has to address problems that are going on, it's usually because people are not thinking about who they are in Christ. They've set their mind, Colossians chapter 3, verse 1, not on things above, but they've set their mind on things down here on this earth. And they're so focused and so wrapped up on this that they then need Paul to write them a letter telling them, you need to start seeking things that are above. Those are the kind of things that are encouragement for believers. And so he says, don't, don't be, learn to live a quiet life and practice your own things. I'm going to give you another example. I don't know that we're ever going to have to cross this bridge, but as your pastor, I'm going to encourage you with this right now, because I know our church, we have a mix of people with different opinions on this. But right now, in our nation, they are telling us that we will never be safe with this, with this virus until there's a vaccine, and we have to have a vaccine. And we have people in there that basically want people then to get a card that says you've had the vaccine, or even get the, the guy over in Bellevue that wants you all to get tagged saying that you've got the vaccine and this is what they're going to want everybody to have. And you know what? If it comes to that, if that's what it comes to, I can assure you our church will not be in, all, in agreement on that. We will have some people that were like, okay, get the vaccine. And we will have other people that will go, no, I'm not going to get the vaccine. And you know what? That would be a time to practice your own things. Just as a practical advice, because it's like, you know, if you have people that don't want it, then don't harangue them on it. Tend to your things rather than busying yourself in theirs. And likewise, the other way around. In fact, 
just I can tell you, my wife and I, we're not for sure. We're in complete agreement between the two of us on exactly which way we would go with this. Anyway, I'm just just using this as an example. Hopefully it never ever comes to that. Uh, and so I'm not trying to get you wound up about this, but this is just what they're saying. And this would be one of those decisions that you as an individual would have to think about. How do you respond to this? And then he goes on. Not only he says, are you to ab continue abounding in love, making it your ambition to be quiet, practicing your own things, but he says, and to work with your own hands, even as we gave you charge. Now, what does he mean when he says work with your own hands? Is he saying you have to do manual labor? That if you sit behind a desk and push a pencil, that's not acceptable? I, I, I think all of us realize that's not what he's getting at. What he's saying is you need to be doing work. This is what's accepted of you, expected of you as a believer. You as a believer are expected to be doing some things, to work. And Paul says, make it your ambition to do this. Now, what's interesting is towards the end of this letter in chapter 5, and turn with me over to chapter 5 for just a minute, and we want to go to, uh, I'm looking for my verse. Maybe it's on my last page here. Hmm. I'm not finding. It. Let's go. Let's go to chapter five. We'll just go over to chapter five. Oops. Here we go. There we go. Chapter five, and we want to go down to. Ah, uh, let's see. Oh, let's go to verse fourteen. And I think verse 14 is broader than this issue, but we're going to look at another verse that's going to tell you it fits within this. He says, we encourage you, brothers, admonish the, now the New American Standard says unruly, and that word unruly is those who are out of order, okay? So they're not under the rule that somebody else is, is setting for them at that point, why we'd use the word unruly, uh, now, what does he mean when he says the, the unruly here? Well, what he's saying is that there's some people that they don't want to follow the leadership. And he just got done talking to them in the previous verses about those people who are laboring among them. Back in verse 12, he says, We request you, brothers, that you should know, appreciate the New American Standard, but you should recognize those who are diligently laboring among you and that they are the ones that are leading you or organizing you in the Lord. And they are the ones that are uh, giving you direction in these things, that you might then esteem them very high, highly in their work because of, uh, in love because of their work, live in peace with one another. That's one of the things they could be doing. We'll cover this in more detail, but we urge you then, brother, admonish the unruly. In other words, when you got others that are going, I don't have to do what that, what those people tell me, those elders in the church that they're teaching me the word, I don't want to do that. And they don't want to listen. I can figure it out for myself. That would be unruly. And he says, you know what part of the rest of you can do? He says, the rest of you can be admonishing those people in there. Now turn over to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 6. It says, but now we charge you, brothers, this is 2 Thessalonians 3, 6, we charge you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you stand back away from every brother then who is disorderly uh, in his life not according to the tradition which you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example, because we did not act in an, in a, uh, uh, 
I'm trying to go back and forth here. Yes, in a disorderly manner among you. Nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with labor and hardship, we were working night and day so that we would not be a burden to any of you. Not because we don't have the authority, but in order to offer ourselves as a model or as an example for you so that you would follow our example. So we've been over this. Um, we've been over this uh, before at different times looking, looking at this idea that, yes, the scripture says that those who are, those who are involved in, in, in proclamation, those who are involved in, in ministering the word, that they earn their living. They can earn their living from the word. Uh, that doesn't necessarily mean they can demand it, that they should expect it. But what Paul did was he, he, didn't, he gave that authority up. Peter didn't. Peter took his wife along and they took care of Peter and his wife. Um, and the other disciples or apostles, excuse me, did also, according to 1 Corinthians 10. But Paul wanted to leave an example that, you know what, uh, you should work. And Paul says, I tried to take care of myself as an example that this is the way it works, that others should follow my example. He says in verse 10, for even when we were with you, we used to give you this order. If anyone is not willing to work, then he does not eat. And we are hearing, he says in verse 11, that there are some among you that are disorderly. They're not working at all, but they're busybodies. Going now, he does bring out the idea of busybodies. But all of this to say that when Paul is making this statement over there to work with your own hands, he's telling these people that they that they need to have some work. They need to be doing something. Uh, and they need to be taking care of themselves. And not being these kind of people that, for whatever reason, decided not to. If we were to go back to Acts chapter 2, we'd find as early as the just the very early days of the church, the believers were taking care of each other. And so when there were believers that had needs, those that had addressed the needs of those that, that had needs. That doesn't ever mean that there were people that said, well, I'm not going to do anything then, and I'm just going to let other people take care of these things. And I'm just going to sit around and play pool and ponder deep things or whatever. We, I don't know what, what you would do. Uh, it would drive me nuts to just sit around and not do something uh, serious in this way, to be tending to other people in some way or another. But they were doing that. And that goes on in the early chapters of Acts. And then you see as you move on later that we have a prophecy in the book of Acts about a coming famine, and so the believers determined to send a gift down there from Antioch, and this goes on, and as Paul writes these churches, we saw when he writes the Roman church, and the or when he writes the Corinthian church, that the Corinthian believers were sending, had promised to send a need, and the Macedonian churches had, had were put together a package to send down to help believers. And so people were taking care of people with needs, but they weren't taking care of people that didn't want to do anything. And that apparently seems to be part of the problem that some people thought, well, I just don't need to do anything because the church will take care of me. And so I can just kind of sit around and not do anything. And this is what Paul said, don't do. So if we go back over to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, when he tells these believers that they ought to work with their own hands, even as we gave you charge, he's trying to tell these believers, and keep it. Keep in mind, 
all of this is within the context of love. So we're all going to bring this all back together in this context of what he means by love. He says, we charge you to do this. And so we just saw that over there in 2 Thessalonians 3, that Paul says, even when we were with you, we charged you, we told you, if a person doesn't want to work, he doesn't eat. You are not obliged to take care of him. And remember, that was in a day when, when people didn't have weren't working, they didn't get a sign up for unemployment. Uh, they didn't get to go down to, they probably didn't have food banks and all the different things. I mean, we've just got so many things in, anymore that it almost sometimes encourages people to not work. Uh, and Paul says, no, to work with your own hands. Notice what he goes on to say in verse 12, in order that you should walk with a good fashion, a good form towards those outside that you do not have a need. In other words, there is, first of all, in this context, there's love in all of these things that Paul's talking about. So when Paul says that he wants them to abound in love even more, part of it is to make their ambition to be quiet. Is it loving to other believers to get them all riled up and wound up about stuff going around in the world? In fact, to me, it's really interesting, and I'm struggling with myself, that it seems like whenever I get on the phone or meet with anybody and talk with them, you end up talking about this stupid, what did Josh call it the other day? The Ronies, if you missed on the afternoon. Oh, I tell you, I just busted a gut over that. I, I lost it when if you missed out on something. Anyway, but the coronavirus, the COVID-19, you can get around, but you know what? I can guarantee you, even when this is done, there'll be another issue that'll garnish our attention or that'll grab our attention and distract us. And if you as a believer are always getting wound up and, and riled up and speaking out on all those kind of issues and stuff, that's not loving to other believers. That's not loving to other believers. It's not loving for me to spout off and go on this to my wife that has to sit here in the house and listen to me get wound up and riled up about what our government is or is not doing or other people are or are not doing or whatever it might be. That's not loving. And so learning to be quiet is a way of expressing love and practicing your own things rather than going around sticking your nose into everybody else's business and telling them, well, you ought to do it like this, you know, this is what I decided for myself, and I wouldn't have decided this if this weren't the best, so you ought to do what I say because it's the best. If I can take you to a chapter and verse in the Word of God, then I'm going to say this is what the Word of God says about where you are. But if it's a matter of opinion, I'm going to let you have your opinion, and I'm going to have mine. And I'm going to practice what Paul says over there in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 5, I believe it is, where it says, moderation. And that word literally means to let it go. It means sometimes that you just got to look at things that you may get wound up and you just, just let it go. It's maybe it is you're making a bigger deal out of it than it needs than needs to be made. Some things, and that would be this idea then of working your own things and then working with your own hands. Working with your own hands is very important. Now, working with your own hands, I'm going to add another detail here that I, I missed here a second ago when I was going through this. But when Paul writes the Ephesians in chapter 4 about people not stealing but work with their own hands, does he just say so they can take care of themselves and be okay? No, he actually says work with their own hands so they can help others. See, it's not just about you. 
I believe, well, in, in a couple weeks when we're in, in our study on promises, we're going to be talking about giving. And if you don't want to hear about believers' responsibility to be engaged in giving, then you probably are going to want to tune out for the next couple weeks because we will hit that at least sometime in there. I don't exactly know when. Shouldn't give you a warning. But, but the point is, is as believers, we should be those that are ready to give to help others that have needs and to address those things. And so working working isn't just, well, I've got enough money put aside in the bank so I don't have to work. That's not it. It's do, it's do I have something that I can help somebody with if that's what God wants me to do and if he brings it across my path. And so working with your own hands, again, it's an example of love. It's an example of love to other believers that you're not putting an unnecessary burden on them and on the same side that you even have the ability to help maybe other believers that may uh, that may have a need and know how to address that uh, as you're doing. And he says, when you do all, so all of that is love. But Paul then also adds, as we said here at the end in verse 12, when you're living like this, you are walking or living your life in a manner that actually is like good scenery toward those outside. And you don't have a need. In other words, they're watching the way you live. The, the world watches us. And it still has always amazed me that I really think we're just kind of know-nothing people out here in the middle of this town. And this is a big town with a lot of people doing all kinds of things. And yet I am surprised by the people that know stuff about what goes on at our church and they know stuff about people in our church and how people do this and I'll be, and they're people that have opinions. I've had to correct opinions. I don't always do that. I try to be very kind. I think sometimes when you try to counter and correct people's opinions about you, it actually makes you sound guiltier. And maybe we can learn a little something from Jesus Christ that when people made charges against him, he didn't defend himself. Sometimes when we're spinning and we're spouting off trying to defend ourselves, we actually look guiltier. Anyway, um, that's something I think that we take away from the way Jesus stood before them. And then Peter seems to indicate that that's kind of a little bit of the way that we maybe can approach some of this. But the thing is, all of that to say is that people watch us and people say things to me and I hear things that come back to me about different stuff. And you're just like, wow, I didn't realize people paid this much attention or even knew any of this stuff was going on or that this would happen or that that people did this. I just didn't know. And so people are watching our lives. And as people watch the way we live, it, it says something to them. They look at it and they go, hmm, that's a kind of scenery that I would like to maybe be involved with. So if we went back to the beginning thing we were talking about tonight, when we're talking about agape love and Philadelphia love, and the fact that they were God taught to be, to be lovers of one another or those that love one another, Jesus made this statement, and by this, by this love you have for one another, shall all, he doesn't say all believers, he doesn't say all just those that are loving, he says all shall know with some experience that you're my disciples. In other words, when they see people, even in the world, when they see people really lay their lives down, even if they respond skeptically and annoyed 
in reality, what they're doing is they're looking at those people going, I kind of wish I were part of that family. They're the kids sitting across the street in the family that looks like they've got everything, but they don't have anything of real value. And they look at a family that may not have everything in the world, but they have love. And they're thinking, I wish I had that. Because they have some kind of a concept of what love is even if they don't appreciate it in the way you and I can. And it does say something. It is beautiful. And it's my encouragement, just as Paul said, for us to stop and say, hmm, I could love more and more. I can abound in love. Okay, so... You, I'm going to 